I figured we can start. In the meantime, we can look at the agenda and what we're going to be discussing, and hopefully everyone will have arrived by the time we actually get to the meaty parts. Okay. So welcome, everybody. Um, this session, for those of you who attended our session last year, is very similar to the session last year in the setup. So we're going to be discussing um, similar things. Okay. So we're going to look at the various submissions that were made over the last year, some of the assumptions that were applied. We're going to look at court cases. We're going to look at what's going on um, with policy matters, with what's happening with the FSB, and then we're going to have some discussion points at the end. Um, please don't keep quiet and keep your questions till the end. We want this to be interactive. We want to have discussions. Um, Maurice is here to answer the difficult questions. <laughs> so whenever you want to say something, just like wave or something, and we'll listen to what you say. It is being recorded, so you need the microphone. So I'll bring it on to the microphone if to anybody who wants to ask a question. Right. So looking at the submissions, um, during 2017 we received 705 reports, during the previous year we actually got 603, so that's quite a significant increase since the previous year. Um, looking a little bit more in depth at what valuation reports we received, you'll see that we're still receiving some fairly old reports, some reports from surplus apportionment dates still. And um, you see we've included a column on the side that actually shows how many outstanding reports that we know of for funds over the various years. Um, these numbers relate to active funds, ongoing funds. It doesn't include terminating funds or transferring out funds. Um, I think that maybe from this what we should really take home is that we really got to get those old ones finished and done because what does it mean to be giving a valuation report from 2002 in 2018? So um, what we're planning on doing is we want to set up a list of which funds those actually are so that we can see if we can move on on those. I think perhaps some of those are actually funds that used to be valuation exempt and maybe no, no evaluator actually knows that something needs to be done. So maybe we need to speak to the administrators of those funds. But we do want to try and get rid of all of those really old outstanding reports. I'm looking at the pended cases. So a pended case is a case where we received the report and we've sent out queries and we're waiting for the fund to get back to us. So at the moment there are 731 pended cases. That number at last year's report back session was 941. So that number has come down quite significantly, which is a very good thing. Um, but if you compare 731 pended to 705 received in one year, you can still see that there's far too many pended cases. So we really would like to get rid of all of those as well so that funds can actually be up to date because that's where they should be so that we can see what's going on for good governance. Okay. Um, so pended cases are cases where we're waiting for an answer. The other point that I wanted to make here is regarding our own SLC times. I'm sure that a lot of you would have noticed that we're not meeting our SLC times at the moment. We have got quite a large number of fairly old cases that we still have to look at, so we do have a backlog project on the way. Um, I am getting regular follow-ups from some people, <laughs> and um, we, we are actually trying to get through that backlog, so we're looking at the very old cases first. Some of them were sent to us like a year ago, so we are trying to get through all of those. Please do bear with us, um, and hopefully we'll be able to catch up over the next couple of months. Looking back at the pended cases, if you see that we keep on asking the same kind of questions, please do change the valuation report so that 
you include whatever it is that we keep on asking so we don't have to ask it. It would be much faster, much more efficient if everything is in the report the first time and it can just be accepted and we can all move on. Okay. Right, some of the statistics. So if you have a look at the number of registered funds, there's just over 5,000 registered funds. But out of those, only 1,650 are active funds. So you, you can actually see that there's a large number of inactive funds. Um, I know that there's a cancellations project going on at the moment, so hopefully when we look at these numbers next year, the number of inactive funds will actually have gone down quite a bit. Um, but looking specifically at the active funds, because those are the ones that are going to be carrying on, so we need to look at those in more depth. So we've split up the numbers as to which ones are defined benefit and which ones are defined contribution. And as you would expect, the large majority of those are defined contribution funds, so it's 1,419 of those. And of the defined contribution funds, 477 are valuation exempt. So if you, if you look at the proportions, I must admit I was quite surprised by those numbers, so it's quite interesting to see that, because I thought that more defined contribution funds would actually have been valuation exempt. So it's just interesting stats. I don't think you can really draw much from, from that information, but it is interesting to see that. Okay. Right. Um, so then, looking back at when do we actually send queries? So all those pended cases, what are the kinds of queries that we generally send out? Okay. Um, the first reason for us querying something is if there's an inconsistency in the report. So the report has an error. Maybe on the one page it says that the funding level is 120% and then on the other page it says 110. Obviously, something isn't right there and we're going to question it because we need to have the right number. Okay. Um, the second reason that we query things is where in the valuation report it's noted that some of the decisions that were made by the trustees are not in terms of what the Act says the trustees were meant to do or are not in line with the rules of the fund. So obviously we can't just accept that those decisions were made, we have to question them because the fund must do what the Act says and what the rules say. If they're not doing what the rules say, they can apply to amend the rules. If they're not doing what the Act says, well, they must do what the Act says. <laughs> okay. um, obviously that's not necessarily a question that valuators can answer, that's more a question to the boards of trustees, but since the valuators are the ones giving advice to the boards of trustees, very often you would also be involved in those kind of questions. Um, the last reason that we usually send queries is if in the valuation report itself we can't really see what, how something has happened, if something builds up or not. So for example, if there's no comment about whether minimum pension increases can be afforded in a fund that has pensioners, we are going to ask about that. Um, I think at the, the previous presentation, the one of last year, I had a, at the bottom of my slide, I said, please discuss any specific queries that you feel we shouldn't be asking with us. So you'll see that that comment remains. I said, please continue to discuss any specific queries that you think that we may be asking that we shouldn't be asking. Because I think that all of us want to get to move forward on all of these things. And if you think that we're asking questions we shouldn't be asking, please do let us know. There's no comments on that. No one wants to say anything. Okay. Um, one of the other things that we were thinking about, and I think it's something that's done in the auditing profession, is maybe setting up something to do with a valuation quality indicator. So in order to improve the, the quality of the valuation reports or maybe make it easier for you to understand what it is that we're looking for, um, we can maybe rate different valuation reports. 
obviously this is not something that we're going to stand up in front of this kind of audience and say, you know, your report is great and yours mm, not so great. No, that's not the idea. But maybe in more one-on-one -on -one kind of sessions we can just go through something like that just to kind of make sure that we're all on the same page. Okay. Um, when we look at evaluation report, our focus is on the correctness of the figures, you know, like consistency, as well as compliance with the Pension Funds Act. Obviously, that is what we would be looking for. And the report needs to comply with Board Notice 149. The other thing that the report needs to comply with, but which is something that we specifically don't necessarily check, is compliance with the Actuarial Society Standards, SAP 201. But the evaluator really is responsible for compliance. I think maybe one of the questions that we had asked is, should ASA be looking at whether evaluation reports comply with their own standards? Okay. Um, the other thing that we really would like the evaluators to comment on is whether the fund is complying with the Pension Funds Act. Okay. Um, I've got a quote there from the Act itself, but effectively what that means is that if you think that something is not being done right or is going wrong, there there is an onus on you to actually come and tell us. You should actually be whistleblowing and saying, you know, we think that this fund isn't doing this right. I think that the ideal would actually be to speak to the fund to get them to fix it, but if you're not getting anywhere on that, you should really come and tell us so that we can also do something about it. Okay. Yes, Arthur. Name's Arthur. So asking, while you're covering a point, we have some major problems with an administrator or two, and that's pointed out to the FSB, and that's uh, something that really prejudices members, prejudices the fund, prejudices everything, but the FSB does nothing about it. Okay, so, so, I, I, so clearly it wasn't told, it wasn't actually a little department to all that, but if we know about, certainly I will speak to the relevant people that um, will be in surveillance and enforcement. So if, if you tell me about it, I will just make sure that it gets attention and see where it is. Maybe they are thinking about it and you just don't know, but, but the communication has to be better. They've got to tell you what they're doing. What we've done is we've also tried to look at, for funds that have got some kind of defined benefit liability, what are the assumptions that are being used? We looked at valuations with an effective date from 2014 to 2017. And we did some slides on that. So we looked at the um, pre-retirement real discount rate. Um, for those of you who saw this presentation last year, we did a very similar thing last year. So now it just includes additional reports that we've received in the interim. Um, and these funny bar things, what they actually mean is, okay, the line at the bottom is the minimum rate that people have used. Um, there's a fairly thick bar and then there's a kind of halfway through more or less there's another line that's kind of the average and then there's a straight line that goes to where the maximum is so you can actually see that the ranges are fairly large um, it's by date okay, the ranges are fairly large um, the outliers that we discussed last year are pretty much still there as the outliers obviously they would be because it's data and really um, because what we're doing here is we're comparing the discount rate to the salary increase assumption including merit increases we found that the reasons for these weird outliers and the negative real returns are for funds where the merit increases are fairly high. Okay. Um, I think that there were, 
Maurice had recommended maybe next time we should not include the merit increases. It might make more sense if we exclude the merit and we just look at salary inflation versus the discount rate. We might then be able to see better without the noise of how much the merit increases are, what kind of real discount rates are being used. You'll see that there's also a, a red line in the middle there. The red line is at the date of the financial soundness notice. So what we had wanted to see, although I don't think it really comes through yet in any of the numbers, is whether the financial soundness notice made a difference in are people now making assumptions that are closer together? Are the ranges still just as wide? You know, has it actually had an impact? I don't think that there have been enough reports following the financial soundness notice to actually come to any kind of conclusion. So watch the space. Maybe next year we'll see something a little bit more significant. Yeah. How does the um, rate used for minimum benefit factor in there? So some do no actuaries just use that rate as their pre-retirement? No. Okay. It does. There's another slide about the minimum benefits rate, but it's not usually used as the discount rate, no. Okay. Um, the next slide is about the post-retirement discount rate. And in this case, we've got the pension increase policy on the y-axis and the real rate of return on the x-axis. Um, you see that this one is also fairly widely scattered. <laughs> um, I think that this is more difficult to gain much insight from because it's over the full four-year period. So you don't know how much of the difference is because of different economic scenarios versus how much is actually because the underlying assumptions are very different. Um, you'll see that we've also tried to identify which ones of these points are after the financial soundness notice, and they're the blue ones with like a blue halo around them, maybe. And because there's very few of them, so it was difficult to actually pinpoint which ones they were. But I don't think that you can really see any difference of those versus the other data points. Okay. Um, <laughs> minimum discount rates. So um, you'll see that this graph is actually exactly the same as it was last year. And quite honestly, that's what you'd kind of expect because people don't really change the assumptions that are being used to calculate minimum individual reserves. So if that had changed significantly, I would have been quite concerned, actually. It's interesting to see that. Um, what we've also included here is what people are generally using for mortality, post-retirement mortality. So um, there are some funds that are still using A55. There are some funds that are using their own mortality tables. But the majority of funds are using PA90. Okay? And what the different blocks show is the age adjustment. So the majority of funds are using PA90 minus 2, with a large number using PA90 minus 1 and PA90. What this graph doesn't show um, is where a percentage improvement in mortality over time is being applied. That would have been more difficult to show in a, in a bar chart, so we didn't try and include that. But it could well be that on the PA90 ones, they're using some kind of mortality improvement over time as well. That's assumptions, so I thought I'd make a quick comment about the latest cases. Okay. The first case that has been finalised is the British American Tobacco Pension Fund case. This is a fund that um, did a surplus apportionment at surplus apportionment date and allocated um, the surplus to former members and members. Subsequent to that, there was a deficit in the fund, and they wrote down the values that were allocated to members at surplus apportionment date to cover the deficit. Um, 
obviously the FSB did not say that that could not be done. It's not in line with Regulation 35.4, cannot be written down afterwards. The fund appealed the decision and the, the appeal board agreed with the registrar. The fund then took it forward. It went to the High Court um, where it found in the fund's favour. It went to the Supreme Court of Appeal where it was found in the registrar's favour. The fund then went to the Constitutional Court for leave to appeal. However, the case was dismissed because the Constitutional Court found that there was no prospect of success. So I think that what this really shows is that we believe that Regulation 35.4 stands and is valid and we're going to apply it. So any fund that tries to write down any of the surplus apportionment benefits that were allocated to people, um, it's not going to be accepted. Okay? There are, however, other cases involving Regulation 35.4 that have not yet been finalised or not yet been heard, so they are still coming. I've listed them there. They all have slightly different nuances, but on the whole, they're all challenging whether 35.4 is valid or whether it's irrational and should not be applied. Okay. Um, the, first, um, the first High Court case was the Pickbell case. In that case, the High Court found in favour of the registrar. However, it was really on a technicality. It's because they said that the 180 days that people have to appeal things was not complied with. They did, however, give some kind of comments as to the merits of the case as well, even though those are not binding because the case was dismissed anyway. And it favoured the validity of the regulation. Okay. Um, they appealed to the Supreme Court of Appeal as well, where they were unsuccessful. They also went to the Constitutional Court for leave to appeal, and that also has been refused. So that case has also now been finalised, and they must apply Regulation 35.4. The other cases have not yet been heard, so maybe next year, this time, I'll be telling you about those. Um, another interesting case in, before the FSB Appeal Board was the Ikuruleni municipality. Um, Okay, it's, it, there's a lot of words and a lot of background. Okay, maybe I'll just summarise it for you. Really what happened in this case is that the rules of the fund say, it's a defined contribution fund and the rules say, that if returns are less than 5%, the employer has to pay in the difference between the return earned and the 5%. Um, eventually, after many fights, the employer did pay in the difference and that was applied as returns and allocated to members by the valuator and we accepted the valuation report from the valuator that did that. The municipality, in other words, the employer themselves, then came to us and appealed our decision to accept the valuation report, and that then went to the appeal board. Um, the appeal board um, found against the fund, uh, against the employer, in other words, um, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't challenge that part of it. But I think that what was important in, in this one, or what the appeal board said, is that once the registrar has made a decision about accepting the valuation report, even if, we, even if the employer then comes to us and says, please review your decision, we actually can't because the decision has been made. So if that decision had to be reviewed, it would actually have to go to court. Okay. So that appeal was dismissed. The employer lost on that one too. Um, maybe not related to court cases, but there has been an increase in the number of funds under curatorship. Uh, in 2014, the law changed to allow for curatorship by consent, and so some of these curatorship appointments are actually by consent as opposed to um, the usual court case route. I think that maybe, you know, some of the background behind some of these, it's mostly to do with um, 
bad governance. So for example, on the municipal councillors' pension fund, the issue there was the governance that happened when they purchased property. And they're also sitting with a very large proportion of their assets in property, which also seems a little bit um, not quite in line with their liabilities. So a curator was appointed there to try to regularise what happened with the purchase of the property and the price that was paid and whether they should be holding those assets in, in any event. Um, looking at the Busselia National Provident Fund, that's actually a fund that is made up mostly of unclaimed benefit members. There's a small group of active members, but mostly unclaimed benefit members. It was really being run by the service provider who was taking fees but not really finding many of these unclaimed benefit members. So the curator has been put in there to try and ring fence the active members from the unclaimed benefit members and to put in place some kind of process to find those unclaimed benefit members so that they can actually be paid. The last one on the Free State Municipal Pension Fund. This was a case of, I suppose you could call it mismanagement of the fund. So the, the principal officer was being paid much more than would have been expected. He earned a very high salary. He appointed his daughter to also work for the fund. So in other words, it was a case of very high expenses of the fund and we felt that there was mismanagement there and the curator was appointed there to try and regularize that. Okay, that's it on the cases. Next, I'm going to discuss policy matters. So I'm just going to quickly go through the notices that have already been published and then the ones that are coming up. I'll probably spend little time on the ones that have been published because I assume you've actually already read them. The first one is about the daily penalty amount. So you will know that previously it was 1,000 rand a day and it's gone up to 4,000 rand a day. That was notice one of 2018. Um, I think that really the idea there is that there's a lot of funds that aren't complying with what they should be and we want to find ways of making them comply. Um, the next one was an information circular really about the whistleblowing requirement and evaluators are one of the professionals that do have an obligation to come forward if they feel that things are going wrong, so um, that is an important notice for everybody. There's also a notice setting out the intention to make some changes with regards to financial statements. And these are actually quite interesting ones or quite important ones. The first one is that funds that previously were exempt from um, audit will no longer be exempt from audit. So they, all funds will need to be audited. Okay. The next one is a reduction in the period for submission, so from six months to three months. And you'll see in my next slide actually that if the six months becomes three months, we are also thinking about changing the period for valuation submissions from 12 to 9, so that it remains six months after the financial statements are finalised. Okay. Um, the last part of what that notice says is currently being considered is all the funds that are still being run on a cash basis of accounting will need to move to an accrual basis of accounting. Okay. Looking at anticipated notices. So a number of these are already out for comment. The first one was about Section 14 transfers. Um, that comments close in February, I think. We're currently considering the various comments. So you should hear from us on that. The next one is about the benefit projections notice. The date for comments is this Friday. So if anyone has not commented, please do so. I'm going to go through that one in a little bit more depth. So if you've got questions on that one, please hold on that one. Okay. Um, there's also a number of 
notices relating to the default regulations. The first one has already been published for comment, the one on smooth bonus products. In other words, what does a smooth bonus product need to comply with in order to be considered as a default? The closing date on that one is the end of March. And the next one that we're going to be um, working on is the one on living annuities and drawdown rates. But that one has not yet been published. Okay. Right. So I said I would say a couple of words about the benefits projections notice. Um, what I've done on these slides is I've, I've set out the main thinking behind it, and then I've set out what some of the comments that we've already received are. Not necessarily our responses on those, because we're still considering, but yeah. So the benefit projection notice says that you need to do benefit projections for members at various times in their lifetime. Okay, the first one is at joining the fund, and the idea behind that is so that they can make informed decisions. If you don't know what you're targeting or what you're going to get at the end, how do you know how much you should be contributing towards it? Then we would like projections done on an annual basis so that people can keep track of where they are. And then in retirement, if you having a living annuity from the fund, something about the sustainability of drawdown rates. Okay. Um, what we're also very concerned about, or we want all funds to make sure that they have a very clear disclaimer that these are not promises. This is not what you're going to get at retirement. These are just projections. So it's important that members understand what the risks are. We also set out a little bit about how we think that the projections should be done. And the idea here is that if all funds are doing projections along similar lines, if members have got money in more than one fund, you can then add up the various bits to know how much you'll actually be getting at retirement. Okay. Um, the information that we felt should be provided is the multiple that you're going to get of cost to company at retirement, as well as what your projected pension would be, even in a defined contribution fund, in other words, you've got to convert it to a pension, as well as what a replacement ratio it would be. Okay. Um, we also set out the methodology that we felt is ideal for setting the assumptions. And it's along similar lines to how the financial soundness notice was set up. So it's based on bond yields. Except that for the projections, we have said that we want to put a maximum return that is used for the main projection. So we said inflation plus four. Okay. Um, Different scenarios can be provided. So for the more aggressive scenario, you can go up to inflation plus five, and then a more conservative scenario of 2% less would be expected. Obviously, if there's assumptions that need to be set, we felt that the most appropriate person to be assisting the funds with these would be the valuator. And that's why when we get report backs from the fund, we think that the valuator would be the best person to be giving a report back. That so in the future, we would want in the valuation report some kind of comment about the projections and the assumptions that have been applied. And for funds that are valuation exempt, in the valuation exemption application, the valuator needs to make comments on these things so that all funds are then covered, no funds are left aside. Um, it will also be mentioned in the financial statements because those happen more regularly, it's on an annual basis. Okay, some of the comments that we received. There were some comments, I think, mainly from administrators, to be honest, but yeah, about the projection at the date of joining. It was felt that maybe the timing of this isn't um, ideal because they probably don't have the member's information before the member makes a choice and they don't have the data that they need. Okay. 
Um, there were also comments about administrators not having the cost to company, so doing a projection and comparing to cost to company might not be that easy. Um, there were questions about whether a calculator would be sufficient, so instead of actually giving statements, the members can just go on the website and look at the calculator. There were questions about how to set the annuitization rates. Should we use all mutuals rates or should we use Sunlum's rates? Um, there were concerns about the volatility in the projections that would be implicit by using the bond yields at the date of the projections and whether the projections should be more stable projections or whether the volatility which is actually inherent in the markets should be there. There were comments that the maximum that we've prescribed is too conservative and there were comments about additional costs that would be involved in now having to do these extra projections for members. Great, is it? Yeah. <coughs> so I think at this point I should thank Old Mutual. I've actually forgotten to do it, or oh, didn't do it earlier, but uh, I did look at the food there at the back. There's no bologna sandwiches, <laughs> so we're safe. We obviously also had a water scarce country. There's wine, but no, I don't see water. <laughs> um, but I don't think we would mind. Um, okay, so last year we did speak about the the move from the FSB to the FSCA. And um, I'm not going to go through all of that this, this time. Which is the main aim is clearly for the, these two organizations, the Prudential Authority, looking at the financial stability and, and, prudential, and financial soundness, prudential aspects, and the FSCA, looking at the market conduct aspects of, of the things. That's where we are. And for the moment, at least, pension funds will remain there uh, with a little bit of prudential as well. At least for the next three years, it might change after that but we'll see. So this whole implementation is in two phases. So the first one is setting up the organizations. We've been working on that for the last year or two. Um, and then the next phase will be to actually streamline the legislation. So we've got at the moment the Insurance Acts, the Pension Funds Acts, all those different acts. There will be a one central act, the Coffee Bill, or Conduct of Financial Institutions Act, which will replace all of that. Uh, probably with this very much smaller Pension Funds Act with the prudential aspects in there. So there is a lot of work going on in that regard. Before all of this can take place, there has things has to happen. Uh, one of the things we need is transitional regulations. We expect that the organization will be in place by the 1st of April. Now, having said that, now it, it has to go through Parliament. Now, I don't know if any of you have been in Parliament. It's, it's, it's quite fascinating. I was there with a stone off debacle and the chair, Yunus, Yusuf Karim, I think his name is, gave everybody two minutes to ask his questions because of limited time. They then spent 45 minutes debating the issue of the two minutes <laughs> and how much time they should have asking questions. So uh, whether, whether the thing will go through in this, this Friday is the actual debate on the regulations. It may or may not go through. We suspect the, it, it might well go through with some changes. Um, but effectively, we do expect that to go through. Uh, the, the, mines, the main points of the regulations are that the, of course, we will have a commissioner system. So there will be a commissioner at and between two and four deputy commissioners. Um, we won't have commissioners on the 1st of April. That's quite clear. So what the, the regulation says is that the current executive committee of FSB will take the role of the commissioners until the commissioners are appointed. So this whole process of appointing them 
but that will take, say, say take six months. So the current executive will stay there for, for that period, and then after that, the current XCAM must stay there for another six months as a handover process to the commissioners. So one would expect the current XCAM to be there for, say, at least a year after 1 April until it's, the, it's a handover to the commissioners. Um, okay, the last part is about the tribunal. So the appeal board, as we currently know it, will still be there. It will be called the tribunal and they will deal with cases of not only pensions but also of, of FSB, but also the Prudential Authority, the NCR, and all the various regulatory bodies within the financial field. Um, as together with this regulation, there will be a commencement notice. So after this, the Minister of Finance will have to issue a commencement notice saying the FEC will start on the 1st of April. But he can't do that until the regulations are through because we need this. So if any of you are interested to become a commissioner, you can apply. Um, so the process will be that National Treasury and the Financial Conduct Authority will have to advertise on the websites and through various mediums. Uh, then there will be a shortlisting panel, which is appointed by the minister. Uh, I think that's four or five people. Then after that, it will be a ministerial panel, which actually makes the appointment. So that's just convened by the minister. Um, the regulations actually spell out what the criteria are. So you've got to have so many years of experience in the financial field, preferably this and that. But, but any of you can apply if you wish to. Um, it will be open, an uh, open contest. Um, like I said, I've mentioned the CARICS must be there for six months. Uh, I've mentioned all of this except for the levies bills. At the moment, the levies, when we issue levies or when we charge levies, that's been debated with industry on an annual basis, so we discuss the levies, it goes through our board, uh, and Treasury, they approve that, and we discuss with pension industry through Earth Fund and those, and CISA. So that process will change next year with the levies bill, so this will effectively be part of the quality taxation system. It's not a tax, it's still levies, but it will follow a different process. So the levies bill will spell out all, actually all the formulas, and we can't change the formulas if the change is more than 6% or inflation in a given time. So if there is a change of more than inflation, it will have to be approved by the minister and the whole parliamentary process going with that. So there's protection in for the industry in that we can't change it. And for us, there's protection because we can, you know, increases up to inflation is by default always there. Um, but that will come in next year. So for the year from 1 April to next year through March, we will use the existing levy system, so we will get the levies in, and even though our structure internally will change, we'll just take the cake and re-divvy it out between the various sectors or sections in the, in the FECA. Um, just the last two slides, so this slide is things we are concerned about. So last year we had the same slide, we basically had the same points. We did add the top one, which is our internal issue, as Julia referred to earlier, that's a big concern to us, and we have to address that. Uh, the other things are not necessarily actuarial by nature. Some of them are. Uh, some of them can relate to actuarial. For example, this one here, the excessive litigation. I mean, can easily put in, replace with litigation with any service providers. You could have excessive actuarial services. I mean, there's funds who's done two re-build-ups of, of the memberships. And whether that is, you know, as any value is, is questionable. Uh, so I think when we do service, when you do service to your fund, you've got to make sure that not only does the fund ask for it, but clearly it has to add value, it must not be excessive, and don't sell 
and necessary services to or oversell services to clients. Um, yeah, the last one here, Julia, I covered as well. High cost basically is always a concern. That was a that's been a treasury concern and for us over the last, last number of years. And that leads to the thing that Ilana mentioned, the PFA with a reduced number of pension funds, so that uh, whether it will come to 200 is a different issue, but, but that's a drive for reducing the number of funds that have more cost efficiencies in the system. Um, this is the last slide before we can have our sandwiches um, and wine. So in the new organization, clearly we, can, we will be a, a market conduct regulator, the focus on market conduct and treating customers fairly. So we were just thinking you know, between Julia and myself, what would be the role of the actually be in that process? Now, ASA does have a market conduct committee and they also looking at various things, of course, not only pensions, but across all the fields. Uh, now, some of these issues here are legislative. I mean, you've got to comply with minimum benefits. You have to have pension increases, comply with the Act. But linked to that, there is, there's a discretionary part in pension increases. Um, so when an evaluator or actuary recommends pension increases, you've got to think of whether you're treating the, the, the pensioners fairly. Not only that, but other stakeholders as well, because not only them that's affected, but the whole fund must be treated fairly. The issue of returns, whether it's allocated uh, reasonably and cost, it's always an issue whether you have a, a, a rent cost per person administrative fee or whether percentage of salary, which is fair, which is not fair. Uh, there's arguments for both, uh, but it has to be considered when, when the decisions are taken. The one that I think concerns me most is the 15C recommendations. Now, many funds have changed their rules, arguing, saying that the employer gets all the surplus in a defined benefit fund because they are the carrier of the risk which is true to some extent, and in many extents, but where there are pensioners, I don't think that's quite true, because in the fund with pensioners, it would be the pensioners who carry the first level of risk. If you don't earn, if your discounted rate is 4%, you don't earn 4%, the increase is zero. So pensioners are really carrying the first thing, and if you give all the surplus to the employer, he takes it out to use that as a pension, pension contribution holiday, Two years later, you can't afford pension increases, then you sit with a problem because you've got to comply with the pension increases, but the money is gone. So clearly, I do think that in any 15C allocation, whether it be in 15C 1 or 2, the pensioners at least has to be considered as a very serious uh, stakeholder in, in that uh, decision. Investment strategy, clearly there's an aspect there because the strategy must be uh, uh, relevant for that fund, for the stakeholders of that fund. Um, you know, having a cash-only strategy doesn't make sense. It doesn't treat the members fairly. And along with that, the communication has to be, uh, be in line with the strategy as well. Okay, so that, as I said, was the last slide. If there are any questions or comments, uh, please don't hesitate to ask or comment. Yes, um, Arthur, here at the back. You to expand a bit on living annuity sustainability of the drawdown rate. So say you're a trustee, you've got a living annuitant who's retired 10 years ago, and the chap happens to have chosen a 6% or 8% drawdown rate, and uh, we do a calculation, say, well, he's not going to be able to sustain his pension, it's going to come down. What do you expect the trustees to do? To actually reduce the drawdown rate, to advise the member, because really the member's choice 
Uh, what, what do you expect the trustees to do? Well, the thing, we, we have to draft guidelines in terms of the default regulation. And I, and I, I think where we will be going, I probably, is to have age-related drawdowns. Because clearly for a younger member, uh, a, a lower drawdown is more applicable than for an older member. So I, I would think where we would go, be going to is that. So if the trustees have a policy to say that our, we will follow, to fully, you've got to be between 25 and 70%, that's the minister, the regulation, and the FECA guidance is, for example, 2% or 2.5% for 60-year-olds, and it goes up to, say, 10% or whatever for 80-year-olds. Trustees can say, yes, we accept that. We, we advise people to go within that. And as long as members are with that, I think what is then remaining for the trustees to do is to show a projection as to, for example, Arthur, if you continue with this discount rate, your money will run out, given these assumptions, at age 82. And I think that communication must be clear. And I, th I think that's where the role of trustees would come in, to have the communication of the potential risks and, and effect of the communicate to the members. The living annuitant ignores the communication and does what he did before. The trustees aren't expected to do more than communicate, to bring it to their attention. And it's up to the living annuitants yeah. to bear the risk. Exactly. I don't think you can do more. I mean, just have your, your documentation clear to say you have done that. Uh, but you can't force people. You know, can take a horse to the water, but you can't force them to drink. Uh, thanks. Just, just um, to lead on to what Arthur said, um, will there be some definition of what sustainability means? Because different views on what that could be. And the second is not related to living annuities, it's related to your projection statements. The bond yield bases are working out inflation. I mean, currently, if you look at it, you'd probably come out just over 6%, 6.5. A year ago, you were probably sitting at 7, 7.5. And we, as a profession, go and say, well, Long term, we expect inflation at seven and a half, and the Reserve Bank sits at a range of three to six. Okay. I feel stupid saying we think inflation is going to be seven and a half. What we're really saying is that we expect the Reserve Bank to fail by, on average, one and a half percent per annum. Something there doesn't gel. <coughs> I, I think something that needs to be looked at a bit in a bit more detail. Okay. So, so we look at that. Just the sustainability. I think that's a question we must consider, Julia, when we write the. the default guidelines actually have in what we think is sustainable. I mean, sustainability would probably, in my mind, be to say it must last until death. Just very broadly. But, uh, but I know it's not as easy as said than done. <laughs> but, uh, yes. Yeah. Oh. Yes. In increasing until death. <laughs> I'm already on pension, so I've done my calculation. Your capital can never run out because you're only taking a percentage of your capital. But the problem is your capital will grow and then it will start using your capital. So at some time you hit the maximum of 17.5%. You cannot have your CPI increase. So if I live too long, I'm going to end up with the end pension exactly what I started with. That's, that's right. So. Of course, it can never run out. That's true. I mean, the ideal situation is we convert to a deferred, to a, to a deferred traditional unit at some stage. But I know that's also that's very expensive, not very, not much 
the availability is very scarce, if at all. Any more questions? Okay, thank you very much. Then, uh, thank you all for coming and we will enjoy the, the snacks and drinks. <laughs>